welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Uh, delighted to say I'm here with Richard Newman. Richard is the founder of Body Talk. It's a consulting and coaching firm dedicated to the science of communication. Uh, he's got a fantastic story, including spending time uh, with some monks, which I'm really looking forward to getting into. Uh, Richard, welcome to the show. Yeah, cheers. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what drew me in, what I just mentioned. Uh, here's a guy who's sort of making his, uh, his name in the world of corporate communications, and it, it seems to have all started um, in a monastery. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> that's right, yeah. So that, that's where my, my career journey began. So when I was, uh, when I was 18 years old, uh, all of my friends were heading off to university and uh, or they were, some of them were heading off to jobs, but mostly going into higher education. And I decided not to do that. Uh, and partly because my, my sister had said to me, she's two years older than me. And she said, whatever happens before you go to university, go and see the world. Because she, she'd regretted not doing that herself. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And when I was in um, the last year of uh, high school, so doing A-levels in the UK, uh, there was a guy who came to our school to do what we called the sixth form lectures. And he had been at our school a couple of years before, and he gave us this incredible story. He was saying that how he had been to work in, uh, he'd gone to Kathmandu and he'd been working in an orphanage and he talked about these stories. And I thought, that's what I want to do. This is amazing. I want to go and help people and, and really make a difference in the world. And I was really aware of the fact that I'd grown up in a middle-class background uh, with you know, an, an easy life, uh, being able to go to a nice school. And I thought, it's, it's time for me to do something really good for the world. And so I put myself forward to various different places that help you get placed. And initially, the, the um, Gap organization, Gap Year organization that I went to, they said, we're going to give you this opportunity to go and uh, teach um, these wealthy children at this private school. You're going to be the head of drama. I said, no, you, you've really misunderstood. I want to go somewhere remote and help someone who really needs me. And so they said, well, there's this monastery we've heard of, and no one's ever been there before, but you could do that if you want to. And I said, that's it. Sign me up. And so I found myself then, I'd never traveled overseas without my parents before, and yet I landed in Delhi. I then had, it took me about two days travel to get across the country then up to the foothills of the Himalayas in the Northeast, which was near Darjeeling, and in this little town of Kalimpong, certainly a very little town at the time, and found myself in this monastery where I was living with a group of monks, which I really hadn't appreciated before I went there. They didn't speak any English before I got there. They spoke Tibetan, Nepali, and Hindi. And I spoke a bit of high school French and German, which wasn't particularly useful. And so there I was trying to navigate, you know, how to do a lesson with them. And we sort of, you know, pointed at each other and gestured. And we realized within about a, an hour of me arriving that actually through body language and nonverbal communication, tone of voice, we could start to understand each other. And so we got to the point of uh, me running lessons for them. They would go out and meditate and pray for people during the day. And then in the evenings, usually during a blackout, uh, usually with candles, I would then be teaching them in their kitchen. Uh, we, we didn't have a blackboard. We didn't have, back then there was no internet. So just put, put, to put this into perspective, I didn't have a mobile phone. The phone that was in the monastery maybe worked for 20 minutes a week. Um, we rarely had electricity because in the evenings, everyone turned the light switches off or on and the whole uh, power system would collapse. And so there I was teaching these monks and I was there with them for six months. Um, and I was also teaching at a local school for Tibetan children aged nine to 12. And it was a real blast. And what I learned from that is the power of nonverbal communication, the power of communicating beyond words. And I'm always keen to reiterate to people because some people hear body language and they think, oh, that's just surface level stuff. You know, what's the, what's the core of communication? And I'm always keen to say to people, look, nonverbal communication is how human beings, how humanity communicated before we had uh, well-known uh, languages that we could then learn and use with each other. And once you appreciate that, then you realize it's not just about scratching your nose or folding your arms or the stuff that's in sort of glossy magazine articles. Instead, it's about a deeper way of connecting with people. And so, you know, I came back to the UK. I then studied acting where I got to learn about how to gesture, how to move, how to walk on stage in a way that would have an impact on your audience, change the way they feel, change the meaning behind a scene and a character and tell a story. And, uh, and then found my way into wanted to teach this and, and really started doing it as a hobby uh, just to, to begin with. It was, it was actually my hairdresser's idea. 
uh, he said to me, hey, Richard, uh, what do you do? Like, what are you interested in? Just like a casual conversation. He's cutting my hair. And I said, well, you know, I'm fascinated with like teaching people and I've done acting and I like communication. And he said, I'll give you a free haircut if you come and teach my hairdressers some of the stuff that you know. And so I did this two hour session in exchange for this free haircut and they loved it. And they said, come back. And so I kept on going back a few times. But then an engineering company rang me up and this guy said, I've just had my hair cut today. And my hairdresser said, you're the uh, UK's number one communication expert. And I thought, okay, they're, they're maybe overselling that. And he said, come and train my 40 engineers. We're about to do an exhibition at the Birmingham NEC arena. And so I did. They loved it too. So I got a website and here we are 22 years later uh, with my team of about 20 people who, where we've trained 120,000 people. So it's been it's been a very surprising ride back from just volunteering to go to a monastery. Wow. hundred. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I introduced you, I said, making your name in corporate case, I think you've made your name in corporate communications. I think that's more, more accurate. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. And I, and I really want to dive into communication, but one of the things I'm interested in is what, what did you learn in return from the monks? What mm. did they, what did they teach you? I, I, you know, I think I learned so much from them. This is really the pivotal pivotal moment in my life. I was you know, very impressionable. I was 18 years old. I was just trying to figure out how to survive without my parents being around and, and so on. But one of the big things I learned about communication from them was their deep listening. That they really, I mean, of course, initially they were struggling to understand what I was saying, but even with each other, they would sit there, they would say a few words like a question, and then they would sit very deeply and consider what the other person had said which is so different to what we see in our day-to-day -day lives uh, in, in business, even in our families as well, where people just sort of jump on top of each other and it's very sort of surface level and there's not really that deep, deep connection that I was seeing with them. So that was a big piece for me. And uh, also a sense of mindfulness uh, where I, I, my room was directly above, above the temple and uh, I would get woken up at 5 a.m. every morning with the sound of, and with this group of monks that had never learned how to play their instruments, they just hit them and blew through them and hoped that it sounded good. Uh, but the, what I got from them was this mindful practice they brought to everything. They would deeply consider what was happening each day. Uh, and that really meant a lot. And I've, I've come back to that and really stepped into a lot of meditation during the course of the pandemic and being mindful about you know, how, how I'm dealing with people, how I'm dealing with situations. But the, the third big piece that I took away with it, uh, from it was th through communication. I learned that the only possible way for me to communicate with them was through congruency, by which I mean my body language, my voice and my words had to match. Otherwise, mm. they didn't understand me. So if I was trying to teach them uh, the word excited, for example, if I didn't look excited and sound excited, then I could, be saying, I could be saying any word in the English language. I could be saying pineapple and they would have no idea. Uh, and so I had to make sure I was totally congruent. And that's one of the major pieces that I would work on with uh, our clients because these days people are not congruent in their communication. A lot of people in business use a poker face. A lot of people in their personal lives will tend to sort of put on armor, a persona or a facade to sort of you know, protect their real emotions. And that creates a disconnect in communication. And so a lot of what I work on with people is to pull that away, let, let go of the armor, put those habits down to really, truly connect with the other person or the audience that you are with. And, you know, by so doing, you have a much more powerful impact on them and you'll be more responsive to what they need from you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fascinating. And I, what you're saying about the, the court, well, it could be a personal or a corporate facade is common. And I hear a common challenge to that is, ah, yeah, but I'll look weak. <laughs> what's, your, <laughs> what's your response to that? Yeah, I, I think that there is, there is a huge fear that people have around, and I've heard this conversation a fair amount since Brené Brown did her talk about power of vulnerability, mm. which I think you know, went viral. I don't know how many people have seen it now, but at least 20 million people have seen it. And it, it's important when, you know, when you're sharing things, when you're being more your true self, that you can still have boundaries around that. You don't have to go through every challenge and weakness that you feel. Um, it, you know, it's just about that sense of having true, meaningful communication. And if you look at the last couple of years, where we've had what has been called the great resignation and other people calling it the great realization, 
you've had a, a group of people who during the course of the pandemic, we were shut in our homes and we were not allowed to hug our family. You couldn't hold your parents' hand uh, just to, to comfort them. And that sense of connection diminished. And so people then questioned, well, why am I working where I'm working? I don't feel connected to these people. I don't feel connected to the purpose. I don't think that these people really care about me. And a lot of those people then went and left. And so if you really want somebody to, uh, to go with you on an idea, whether it's an adventure in your personal life or an idea or a business, if it's a client or a team, they want to feel that sense, that true sense of connection with you, that you care about them, that they truly see your purpose, not just, okay, we need to hit these KPIs and this is what you know, the middle management have said to us and so on. They really want to know from you, do you care about me? And do I care about what's important to you? And so being able to drop some of those uh, old habits and drop the poker face and talk to people meaningfully is what allows you to really rally a tribe of people around an idea and for them to be passionate supporters. Not just doing it because, and what we found the last couple of years, people are not going to do a job just because it gives them money and it is convenient. That, that, that's not going to happen anymore. Instead, people want to do something that means something to, to them. And for that, they have to see that it means something to you. Uh, and so it's actually a, an incredible strength to show that. Uh, and, uh, and also to go back to that point of, well, does it show weakness? If, if you stand in your truth and you speak your truth and you think of that uh, as weakness, you have to question, well, how strong is your confidence? How strong really is your courage that it can be mm. diminished by telling somebody what's really going on? And so it does take a matter of, you know, being really clear with yourself about your purpose. And I'd also suggest in that situation that people go into a situation with internal validation. So sometimes it can feel really scary to go in and, and speak openly about something if you're looking for external validation, which is what people have been doing on social media for the last few years, where they put up a post, and they go, oh, I hope people like it, I hope people share it, comment it, because they're looking for this external validation. It can feel really stressful. But if you go into a meeting, or even if you post online thinking, this is true to my values, this is the person I want to be, then there's nothing at risk, because if people like it or they reject it, you still think, I know that I am going on my path. This is who I am. And therefore, I'm going to be going in the right direction. That's a really good point, isn't it? It's, it, it's <laughs> if you're worried about looking weak, it's, it's now no longer a question about your communication. It's much yeah. more about, well, why, what, why is that a fear for you? Because it suggests yeah. you've got a fear of not being validated by these individuals. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly. the important point. Yeah. 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 And so is that something you do? Because that's a slightly deeper level of work with people. Is that something you get into in, in your coaching then? Yeah, it's been fascinating the last uh, couple of years. So what happened was, say back in 2018, 2019, you know, the core of what we were teaching for people was communication. It might be presentation skills or one-to-one -one or conflict resolution or you know, storytelling, those pieces, very common. And I devised this piece around mindset. Because I recognized that for some people, we get them so far with what we were teaching them, and then they'd, they'd hit a, a brick wall or they'd hit some kind of resistance where I thought, now it's all about the mindset that we need to work on. So I developed this piece that we would do now and then. And then since the, the pandemic uh, hit us all, I think that lots of people were then approaching HR, approaching their head of L&D and saying, I need help for me. Like, I, I don't just need help knowing what to say in that meeting. I, I need help. And so, you know, organizations were coming to us saying, what have you got? And we said, well, we, we're ready to go. Uh, and so uh, I've been, you know, teaching this mindset piece. It's probably been the single most popular piece that people have asked for. But also we go into much greater depth uh, around this of, uh, you know, where previously we might do, say, an hour session. We're down, now doing multiple hours uh, around this. And it's giving people that sense of being able to look after themselves first, so they're able to thrive, then they're able to be a positive impact on the people around them and a positive impact for the business as a whole. You've got to look after yourself first. And we, we talk about this as lifting yourself. So uh, I'm, many people have heard the, the phrase of uh, put your own oxygen mask on first. Uh, yeah, uh, right. But what I've seen on social media recently is these influencers saying, cut the negative people out of your life. If anyone's a bit of a downer, just, just let them go. And I think it's an awful way to look at uh, society as if to say, okay, all the happy, happy people go and have cocktails on an island and leave the rest of us to try and um, you know, deal with the uh, emotional challenges of life. 
Uh, and so what I say to people is like, you need to lift yourself, but don't put your own oxygen mask on for the next 20 years b- before you hurt, help the person sitting next to you. And so instead, it, what I work on with people is things that you can do that will only take maybe a few minutes at the start of the day. So you get ready, then you're ready to lift others, then you're ready to lift the business or lift the community that's uh, all around you. So, uh, so that people can you know, thrive from the inside out, if you like. Mm. And what does that practice uh, consist of? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, this, this is a piece that I've been working on for myself for many, many years in terms of you know, growing a business where I didn't go to business school. I didn't actually go to university in the end, uh, much to the disappointment of my parents where you know, I had offers and just left them to one side and built a business. And it was very much trusting that my, my instincts around things would head me in the right direction. And so I would need to get that sense of internal validation as well as building up business skills along mm. the way. But I've been building up this process of, well, how do you get yourself set for the greatest success and the better version of yourself each day? I also built this because I'm in the world of communication. I teach communication for a living. Not only that, I'm on stage teaching it in front of, you know, it could be a thousand people, but I come from a background of being shy, uh, being intensely introverted. Uh, you know, I'm very much at home wearing a hoodie and a pair of headphones and just quietly minding my own business. And, and also just uh, recently during the pandemic, in fact, uh, got uh, diagnosed with high-functioning autism, which um, what it means essentially is that I see the world differently and I, I see communication differently. So I have to work harder to figure out uh, how to communicate. So all of this led to a lot of stress for me you know, in building the business, trying to figure out how do I show up as my best self when there's, there's some challenges that I need to overcome. And so my uh, sort of ideal morning routine, if you like, starts the night before. Uh, and so uh, what I tend to do is I, I get a, uh, a flask ready, a hot flask and a cold flask. The hot flask is warm water and lemon juice. And then the cold flask is a, a nice energizing uh, morning smoothie. So I don't have to think about breakfast. I don't have to think about, will I have something nutritious? Or I wake up a bit late and then I go, oh, I'm just going to grab something unhealthy. So I know that in the morning, I'm really setting myself up well. And ideally in the morning, I get up. I stretch, I'm drinking my hot water and lemon juice, and then I do some kind of physical activity, which might be going for a run. I've got glorious woods just behind my house, which is where they filmed some of Harry Potter. It's just sort of glorious old ancient woodland. Uh, Or it might be some kind of uh, yoga or lifting weights, but something to get my body going. And uh, I'll also spend some time in gratitude for where I am right now, and there's a the piece on mindset around storytelling that I talk to people about saying, you know, I want to set the story for my day, but also for my life, a sense of where am I right now? Where would I love to be in the future? And what's my journey there? And what's an action I can take today that will actually set me forward on that journey? And what I noticed in periods of frustration is that I might have these massive goals and feel like, oh, it's just so far to get there. But if each day I was making one step forward, just one step, then suddenly I would feel like, okay, today was a good day. I'm, I feel further ahead than I was yesterday. So all of that coming together at the start of the day, you know, sets me up. So I have a very clear focus on where I'm going. Uh, the other piece that I like to do is to get clear, get connected with my personal values. Like wh- what kind of person do I want to be? And what principles do I want to live by such that with all the challenges and difficult decisions that are going to be made, that I will know no matter what happens, I live by these values. And so I can, you know, I can sleep well at night knowing that I've been the kind of person that I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, well, that sounds, that, that sounds, um, impressive. And, uh, and I think to be able to do that every morning must take, you know, is it taking you a while to build that habit? I guess that's not something you just sort of slot into overnight. Well, it's, yeah, I think that it's like initially uh, there's been a bit of back and forth and thinking, well, how do I do this and so on? And um, now it's just, it's very much a rhythm. As soon as I think, okay, it's probably time for me to be heading to bed. I think, okay, two flasks, got to get those two flasks ready. I mean, this rhythm of like what what goes in the smoothie and I just get it ready. I place it exactly where it needs to be. I've got my uh, workout clothes ready to go where I need them to be, you know, beside my bed. So the first thing I know I'm going to do in the morning is put them on. So there's no negotiation. There's no, do I feel like it? I've put them on before my brain's woken up. Um, and there is also, I have to say, support from, uh, my wife's very busy in her work, but either she or uh, we have a lady who looks after our, our children uh, a few days a week. 
So I have young children uh, who are aged eight and uh, 11 at this point. And so their childcare needs to be looked after too. So on the weekends, I'm up and I'm looking after them and I'm making breakfast and I'm you know, cooking for them and, uh, and there for them. But first thing every morning, Monday to Friday, because of the, the team that I look after and therefore the community beyond that, that we're looking after, I make sure I'm going to get my mindset ready. And I think, you know, where possible, when I'm depending on where I'm traveling around the world to do our work, I get up as early as necessary because I yeah. know that that morning routine is non-negotiable. So I always work back from what is the first appointment I need to get to or the first responsibility I've got with looking after family things or professional things. And I work back from there and say, so therefore that's the time I get up. And when the alarm goes off, I'm out of bed. I don't, I never press snooze. I'm just out of bed and doing it. And I think that because I've done that for so long, it has just become, this is the way I live without negotiation, without thinking about it, just as much as sort of brushing your teeth in the morning. It's just become that for me. Yeah, great. And I can also see how the, the evening ritual is important there because you, you're, you're going to then need less willpower in the morning <laughs> to execute, right? You've already got some of the pieces laid out. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I, yeah, I can resonate with that. The other thing that it reminds me of, it's kind of the inverse. I don't know if you've heard that expression, whipped cream on a cow pack, right? If, you, if, you're trying to do, <laughs> if you're trying to do anything on top of, I don't know, let's, well, this actually comes from an old therapist, right? If you're, if you're trying to, be good in the world on top of a bunch of unresolved trauma, you're going you're gonna mm. to struggle. Yeah. Right. And it sounds to me like this is similar, right? If you're trying to communicate powerfully and effectively on top of a mindset, which is craving external validation, you're, mm. you're going to struggle. So it's, it's like creating a, yeah, a, a foundation but yes. to, to execute on the, on the skills that you're teaching. Yeah, I think that's great. I've never heard that analogy before, but I'm going to use it in future because <laughs> I think that's tremendous. But yeah, that, that was something that I recognized uh, early on. If I go back to sort of 2020, where uh, to give this context, I, I'm in a business where we would do 70% of our work would be overseas. So 70% of our work required aviation running seamlessly and we'd also, 100% of our work was in person. We'd never done anything virtual. And in February 2020 or early February, everything was looking great. We had like this tremendous lineup of work. And then by the beginning of March 2020, everything had gone. Uh, of course, a airlines weren't in business at that time. And uh, we weren't allowed to be with people in person. We had a, a, an expensive London office. We've got people on the payroll. And there was a real panic of people looking at me thinking, okay, you know, what's going to happen? At the same time, we were going through the challenge of uh, there was a, a criminal attack on our company where people had been hacking into the database, allegedly, but according to the IT report, downloading our information and then aiming to approach our clients, undercutting us and trying to sort of tear apart uh, our company. And so I was dealing with that piece as well as not having anything in, on the cards for you know, being able to employ our team and, and make sure that they can pay their bills and make sure that they could feed their families. And so there was a lot of tension that was going on, a lot of stress. And around that time, the, the NHS you know, put out this plea saying, we're looking for volunteers that can help us during this uh, COVID situation. And I turned to my wife and I said, I, th I feel like I want to sign up for that. Like I really want to be a part of the solution. And then we talked about it and I came to the realization of actually my family is relying on me right now. My, my team are relying on me right now and our clients beyond that are going to need support. I've got to make sure that I am a rock in the middle of this storm and that I'm there to, to provide for the people around me because that's uh, critical for all of them. And so that's why I then started getting up and making sure that I was as strong as I needed to be for everybody else. And so it was very much doing it as a sense of service to them, uh, a sense of wanting to be the best version of me that I could be for others, for my family. You know, my, my kids are going through the situation of thinking, why can't we leave the house? And, you know, how, how are mummy and daddy feeling about this? And my team looking at me thinking, should I be worried? Should I go and try and find another job of some sort? Uh, and so I wanted to make sure that I was as strong as I had to be for, for everybody else. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You've got to get that piece right. And as soon as I was getting that piece right, then ideas would come to mind. And as I was meditating, the name of a client would pop into my head or an idea about how we transform things into virtual learning would, would pop up. And I think, okay, I'm ready. I'm good to go and, and off your head. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's a great story. And I wonder how many other people had that 
that experience during the pandemic. You know, I think my, my sense is that a lot of people were forced to introspect in a different way. And that was yeah. one of, I mean, there's a huge amount of negative side effects, of course, but that yeah. may have been one of the positive ones for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it was that there was benefit to come out of this. Of course, the tragedy was there as well. Uh, but I, I think that having time to think about stuff was valuable. I mean, you know, from my position, I, I used to be on 40 to 50 flights per year going to travel to events back and forth and all the jet lag that goes with that and being in airports and taxis uh, to being at the point now where, you know, with, during the pandemic particularly, I could just turn on a webcam and do my thing, turn it off and go and see my kids uh, yeah. rather than spend the next 12 hours wondering how I was going to get home. So, so there's lots of time me, for me to do self-reflection. But I think what we noticed during that period is there were so many people that I noticed who ended relationships, quit their job, moved house, like a whole range of things where they thought, I'm just going to get my life in order. I'm going to decide who I want to be. And I think there's great power in that because sometimes we're just in the routine of, well, this is just how life is. And we keep on powering forwards rather than ever taking a moment to say, let me just sit back and think about this. And uh, I mean, it's a different story around this. There's a guy I know, I greatly respect for what he did, who built a business where he, he was working at a company, working very hard, not quite fulfilled. And then he had a skiing accident, which meant that he, was, he had a leg in a plaster cast and he was at home for three months. And during that time, he, he created like a little desk for himself in his shed. And he would just all day, every day, just write up, if I built my own company, what would that look like? Like if I could create that for myself, what would it be? And by the end of that three months, he had this business plan and went on to build a business. Well, I think there's maybe 80 people working for him wow. now around this, uh, this vision. So yeah, I do think that that introspection is valuable. And, and going back to the story from before, when I was with the monks, sometimes at the end of the, the night, I couldn't sleep, which is probably partly due to the fact they used to give me four flasks of tea a day. Like a flask was like a liter of tea. It just kept on coming. So in the evenings, it was hard to sleep. So I, I would go up to the roof of the monastery, which is a flat roof. And I'd take my, my rug from my room, just sort of lay on this concrete roof on this mat and just sort of stare at the sky and think, you know, who do I want to be? And this was really the benefit, the fact that, you know, we didn't have internet, mobile phones, social media didn't exist uh, back then. There was, there was no entertainment. I didn't have a TV. The only way to entertain myself was to stare at the stars and think, what do I want to do in my life? And while I was there, I wrote out this journal I'd write every day. And I wrote out this plan of where I was going to head in my life and what I wanted that to be. And so much of that has then played out and actually sort of gone bigger and broader than I, I could ever have imagined. But I think there's so much power in just allowing yourself to be away from screens, away from devices, and let your brain do the miraculous things that it can do when mm. it's not busy with other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's true of so many people who are successful. Maybe it's true of all people who are successful. They've written the story in their head first. Yeah. And then they've lived it out. It's, uh, yeah. It seems to be one of these laws of the universe mm. that uh, we perhaps, it's, yeah, it's useful to acknowledge. Yeah. I think actually yeah. one of my, um, my most challenging periods that happened in my business, uh, and I remember the, the, the sort of the stunning realization that I was going for my morning run where I would normally do my thing. It's like, I think, well, where am I? Visualize the future and knew where I wanted to go and what's the journey to getting there. And as I was doing it that day, I just thought, I can't see the future. I've always been able to see the future. I've always known what future I'm building. And today I can't, I can't see any future. And I had to really sit back and think, well, what, what went wrong? Let me just retrace my steps for a moment. It's almost like I'd sort of been running, running and reached a dead end. And I had to go back to the turning where that had happened, uh, where I had to then address a, a big issue that was happening uh, for my company at that time. And once I'd addressed that, I could see the future again. But uh, yeah, I think that the ability to have that sense of this is the path that I'm heading on uh, is incredibly important. Yeah. And, and just by giving you that space to reflect and let it emerge, it I'm, I'm, avoids you getting into the, 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 the trap of despair, right? Because mm. if you're going on one track and then something like, you know, the crisis of the pant comes along and suddenly that's taken away, it's, it's easy to go into despair if you've not given yourself that space to, to recreate mm. an empowering context for yourself. But. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's even, uh, there's a fun story around this. I was talking to um, a client about this uh, earlier today. Uh, which is, uh, have you heard about the, uh, the study that was done by the Max Planck Institute about walking in circles? No. Have you come across this? 
So this is, I think it was about 20 years ago, and then it's talked about in lots of different papers and articles. Uh, but uh, what he studied is that this concept of do people really walk in circles? And so he um, arranged for people to be put into, some people were put in the forest, some people were put in the desert. They had a GPS tracker on them, and they then wanted to see, well, how far can you get in six hours? So they said, you've got six hours to get as far from this point as you possibly can, uh, and off you go. And some of those people only managed to get 20 meters away from the starting point, which is less than the length of a tennis court. Uh, so they'd sort of, you know, wander off and just come back around because they had no landmarks to, to steer themselves from. And they'd arranged for this to happen on, on cloudy days. And I think the, the average that people got was two miles. So to put that into perspective, they were allowed to run. And so if you were running for six hours, you might be able to get, I don't know, 20, 30 miles. People complete marathons in, in that time. Mm. Um, whereas they, what they noticed is that on one of the days, the sun came out, the clouds disappeared. I think also for one person, it was the evening and the moon was there. And so as, as long as they had either the sun or the moon, they were able to navigate and go at least five times further than anybody else. And for me, this plays out in life where if you know what your North Star is, then you're mu much more likely to be consistently heading in that direction rather than having a life that feels like you're sort of walking in circles and you're not really getting anywhere in your relationship or your health or in your career. You, you have to know what that North Star is going to be and, and trust that, that you know, you, you've committed to it. And then during the hard times, you just need to know, have I made one step towards the North Star today? And if I haven't, what can I do about that? So that, that's certainly been very powerful for me. Yeah, I love that. I hadn't heard that research before. Mm. Yeah, yeah that, makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a great modest, uh, metaphor. And, and is, isn't that a core part of Buddhism as well, the idea of the importance of, of a goal? Gosh, that, that's a good question. And, you know, I think I wish I'd learned more about Buddhism when I was at the monastery, but the challenge was the language barrier was there. We got to the end of the six months. I could speak pretty good in English. To me pretty well in English and I could speak pretty well in Nepali. And it was almost like I then came home and thought, oh, I really should have asked them some questions about <laughs> Buddhism <laughs> while I was there. But I think, um, I think that what I noticed from them uh, particularly was how much joy they took in simple things. And, you know, I think that what we tend to do in life is we have, we have goals that can be, that can be, be very material, very superficial, and therefore give us short-term pleasure. And what I noticed from them, and so a concept that I've held dear since, is that it's okay to experience short-term pain if it means long-term joy. And so they were very able to, you know, resist simple day-to-day -day temptations. Uh, and, you know, in the monastery, there, there was teenage boys there that would have, you know, teenage desires. Uh, but they were, they were training their mind to have that ability to uh, to withhold that just going for everything that's tempting you in your environment to have that what could feel like short-term pain that you had that long-term joy of of living a life uh, on on purpose and so that that that's something that I really came away with thinking that you know living a purposeful life is actually much better because I, I mean, I've seen the opposite happen where I see people going for those those short-term goals where they go oh if only I get that car or if only I can get that uh nice outfit that I'd like to buy, or, you know, if I manage to go to that party and get beyond the, uh, the velvet rope and be in the VIP room, then I'll feel like life is great. And uh, actually all those external things, uh, as a goal are just deeply unfulfilling. Whereas if we have, if we have that internal goal of, you know, being able to feel a certain way or be a certain way, be a certain type of person then those are goals that you can achieve. And so when I talk to people, again, coming back to mindset, when I talk to them about, you know, really thinking about an event that's coming up and achieving at your best, I'm always keen to say to them, focus on how you want to act and how you want to react in a way that we, you'll be proud of. Because you don't know what the other person will do and you don't know what the technology will do on the day, but what you can control is how will you act and how will you react. And there can be great joy from that where you walk away thinking, I'm so proud of how I was in that situation that I really lived out, you know, the sort of person that I want to be. That's really interesting. So it's not about the quality of your, of the slides, how you're standing, the way you're using language. I mean, that, well, that makes a difference, but it's, yeah, it's how, who are you going to be? Yeah. And I found that really valuable too, because I mean, there's a couple of stories on that, but because I've been, you know, doing teaching and training and working at conferences for 22 years, 
everything that can go wrong has gone wrong. I, I've been in an event once where I had about a hundred people there and the, the projector started steaming or like steaming or smoking halfway through the presentation and then just went bang <laughs> and it was finished. And I thought, okay, I had a lot of examples I wanted to show people up on the screen here that were kind of important, but you know, I'm, I'm leading them. They're looking at me like, how's he going to react? And I thought, we're just going to keep going. Everything's going to be okay. Um, and I've also been in situations where people uh, hadn't shown up on time. The doors were locked. I wasn't able to get into the building. And all my preparation for, you know, this is how I thought the event was going to go, was going out the window. So I've had to learn that but people are not going to do what you think they're going to do. Technology is not going to do what you think it's going to do. But there are things you can control. And as another story on that, there was, I remember going to an event uh, in London where there was a speaker who was showing up. And I forget the exact topic, but it was something about mindfulness and inner peace, something like that. And, and outdoors, they were a bit disorganized that day. They hadn't used the venue before. And uh, I didn't observe this, but other people had observed him where he was just like shouting and angry and banging on the door and getting frustrated with the people around him. And uh, he then acknowledged it when he came in on stage. He said, okay, yes, that was me outside. <laughs> Showing frustration and anger. Well, let's now talk about mindfulness and peace. And uh, so, yeah, it's, I think it's just important to think, okay, what legacy do I want to leave? How do I want people to feel about me, even though things are not going well? And as a little, like a recent story that comes to mind on that. Uh, when I just came back from Canada, I took my, my, um, my family to Canada. And when we came back, Everybody else's suitcase arrived apart from mine. And so I'm there with my kids at the airport and uh, we're just like waiting for the bag to come out on the, the conveyor belt. And it got to the point where I realized it's never going to come. We'd been waiting like 90 minutes. And so I thought, okay, there's two things I can do. I can get really stressed here because there's stuff I need that in order to do my job that is in that case and it's not coming. And I, all my clothes are in that case. And what am I going to wear? And I was also frustrated that you know nobody had said anything that they hadn't put it, put it on the plane. They must have known about it. So I then thought this is actually a teaching moment. Like with my kids, they're either going to see when something goes wrong, get stressed. That's that, that's what they'll see, or they'll see when something goes wrong. This is how you cope with it. And I thought mm. if I turn this into a teaching moment, I find the better version of myself, and I help make them find the better versions of them themselves. So I said, okay. Uh, I turned to them and said, well, I've done about 500 flights in my life. This hasn't happened before, but when it does, what you do is you look for the tag that you were given the other end. Here's the barcode. We're going to go over there and we're going to check out and see what happens. And so the whole time, like there's part in my head going, I can't believe this has happened. Yeah, yeah, but I thought, yeah. out outwardly, I'm just going to turn this into a teaching moment. And at the end, my eldest turned around to me and he said, Daddy, I'm really glad that you dealt with that situation in that way. That's really impressive. And I thought, that's it. That's a teaching moment. I feel, I feel glad that I've done it. So I, I think that, you know, sometimes when we're feeling an emotion, we feel the need to express it. But if we think, what impact do I want to have on the people around me? Then we're able to find a, a better way to be. Yeah. And I think you've just answered the question I was going to have. It's like, yeah, that sounds great. But how do we catch ourselves? Because this, is, this mm. is great theory. We all may want to aspire to it. But when you're, when you're in that moment, your bag's not there. How do you, yeah. you catch yourself and, and, and make the flip for asking that question, how do I want to be for others? That's, I guess, one powerful yeah. pattern interrupt, right? Yeah, I think I've heard this described recently as uh, having hindsight in advance, where you just you think, okay, eventually everything is going to be all right. One day I will have a suitcase and clothes again in that situation. Uh, you know, one day I'll look back on this and it will be a story that I can tell. Um, it doesn't feel good in the moment. But uh, do I want people looking back on that event and saying, oh, do you remember when he was kicking and screaming and shouting at people and being really unhappy for ages about this case that actually eventually turned up? And for me, it took about a week for me to get it back. Uh, or, or do I want people to look back and go, gosh, see, he really seemed to breeze through that. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm aiming to do. I'm not always successful with it, of course, but that's what I'm always aiming to do is to think, particularly as a leader of my business and, you know, as an, a role model for my kids, how do I want them to feel about, you know, who I am? And this is called, you know, personal brand people talk about is really, what do people say about you when you leave the room? What, mm. what is your impact? 
And I find that super important because I, I can be very direct in my communication. It's part, partly comes with, you know, the diagnosis of being autism. You just sort of say things how they are rather than understanding that this it's, you, know, you can sort of put a little bit of extra softness around this that helps with the relationship, which is something I've had to learn. So yeah, I've always been keen on doing that focus outwards, thinking, okay, I, I do my internal validation before I go into a room. Uh, so I've got a sense of this is who I am, or I lift myself at the start of the day with my mindset, but then I'm with people. I've got to think, you know, what does this person need? And what, what, what lasting impression do I want to make in this situation through their eyes, which I find is uh, super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you're combining two things there. I think there's, what is this orientation towards like service and, and what can I do for others? But also sometimes I've heard that that called future casting, right? Where you're like, mm. how is this all going to be at the end of this <laughs> stressful moment, right? Yeah, yes. where am I yeah, at the yeah. other end of this? Um, yeah. Am I in a, in a place where, I, you know, I'm relaxed and people have been impressed by how I've operated or am I going to be yeah. a, a hot mess? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've even had this once where there, there was a business coach of mine. I was going through um, some challenges I was trying to overcome and she said, do you know what? One day you're going to look back on this moment and you're going to tell this story of what this situation was like. And I remember looking at her thinking, she seems really convinced about that. Okay, I guess maybe I am going to be. It still feels hard right now. It feels like I'm going to be doing this hard thing for quite a long time, but okay. And I sort of, I liken that to, you know, if I'm, if I'm lifting weights, that there's no part of me that goes, do you know what I want to do right now? I just really want to lift my weights until my body feels uh, stressed out and achy. Like, I, I don't do that. But in, during the time I'm thinking I'm doing this because then I know that when I'm traveling around the world, carrying, carrying heavy suitcases, I'll have the strength to be able to do that. Uh, you know, my, my, my limbs went a little bit soft during the pandemic because I just wasn't used to going out and having to do those things uh, and lift heavy things all the time. But when you do exercise, you know, it's really about getting your body ready for everything else. You know, I'll go for a run so that I'm able to play happily with my kids without getting out of breath. And so it's about, you know, do, doing that work, I think is, is good. And it's good to know that in a moment of thinking, if I'm going through stress right now, when I come out the other side, I'm going to be so much stronger at going through this sort of situation that when it comes up in, again in future, I'm going to know how to cope with it. Um, which is, you know, back to the story of the monks, the, the ability just to get on a plane and go anywhere and, and do something in a brand new place suddenly was not that um, challenging for me after that, where I thought, I've done that before. It was a lot harder the first time. This is going to be fairly straightforward. Right, right. And you mentioned this autism. I'm just fascinated here because you seem like the least autistic person I've ever encountered, right? You've got the yeah. eye contact, you're smoothing your communication, <laughs> you're, you're, you're engaging. Mm. You're just like, yes. How, how? So, yeah, explain that to me. So what form of autism mm. do you have that, yeah. I guess you've described it as high-functioning but yeah, I'm just yeah. intrigued. What, 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 what is autism in your case? Yeah, so I think what's, what's important for people, because I was surprised too when there was a suggestion of, you know, get, get the uh, diagnosis done. Because I, I think back in, the, say, the 1980s and 1990s, when I was first aware of that term autism, it, it meant something much more specific, where it was people who you, you could take a look at them and think, oh, I think this person might be autistic. It was, it was much more obvious. And what they've done is recently, I forget the year, but sort of early 2000s, they changed what it means to be on the autism spectrum. So it's, it covers a much more broad range of things, including things like Asperger's and, and other pieces on this big uh, autism range, autism spectrum. And so uh, that means that there, there are a lot of people who have autism where they're sort of hiding in plain sight. And they tend to find on this that uh, for women in particular, women might get a quite late diagnosis in life because they are better able to hide those, uh, those symptoms. And so um, for, for me, it's been a process of, uh, if I go all the way back and try and figure out where was I first aware of this, I remember when I was, uh, just before my fifth birthday, I moved schools. And uh, I, I, I remember being in a situation where I was just trying to connect with the other kids and thinking, I can't connect with them. They, they seem to be able to connect with each other, but I can't do that. And I don't know why. And I feel like I'm in a glass bubble and I'm not sure how to do this connection thing. And, you know, I, I, I struggled with communication through school years. I got to the age of being 16 and uh, a friend of mine 
bought me the book Body Language by Alan Pease for my 16th birthday. And she said, uh, you really need this. Like, if you read this, it's going to help you, but it's also going to be a favor to people around you because you're not good at this. And I read it thinking, this is the holy grail. Like, this stuff was all new information. I had no idea that any of it existed. And then uh, flash forward in time on, on this story to, uh, I think it was about maybe 10 years ago, something like that. Uh, there were friends of ours who were around for dinner, and they said that they had uh, autism in their family, and they're about to, uh, like, getting ready to have a baby. And so they were wondering, well, would that be the case for their child? And they'd done a test online to find out. And so they said, you can do this. Why, why, why don't we all do it? We'll just go, go online and we'll show you the site. And so everybody did this test. And uh, you could get a score, maybe a hundred questions on it. You could get a score of up to 50. And uh, each of them were like revealing their scores. They'd score like 45, 47, 49. And if, if you're in between 45 to 50, then, you know, you're fully neurotypical and so on. And my score came back and it was five. And I thought, mm. oh, they've, they've, they've been, they've punked me. They've been, they, they, this was all set up. Like, clearly this is a hoax. This, I don't have autism. That's ridiculous. Um, but I just didn't understand what it was uh, back then. And I sort of just let it go. I thought, well, that's crazy. And then I was interviewing a lady for uh, my podcast a, a couple of years back, and she was a specialist in... Uh, early stage communication. And she said during our interview, she said about 90% of people will develop communication perfectly normally. There's about two and a half percent of people who will have a permanent challenge, such as permanent hearing loss. And she said there's then another seven and a half percent. And that's where her team would work on people who are having a challenge that if you work on it enough, you are able to, uh, to get your communication skills uh, up to speed. And in, it was only when I was driving her home after the interview, driving her to the train station. I said, I think I'm in that seven and a half percent. And she said, no, you can't be. No, ridiculous. You communicate for a living. And I said to her, well, what would put me in that bracket? And she listed off these things. And I said, that's me. That, I mean, I know that I, you know, I've worked very hard on my communication skills every day to get to a place where I can communicate well and then teach others. Uh, but that, the journey that you've talked about and the, the challenges, that's all me. And so I then went to, uh, eventually got around to getting a diagnosis where the lady who diagnosed me was sort of head of autism diagnosis in her country and she'd been diagnosing for about 35 years, children and adults. And there's a long process you go through. I think I filled out a form that was about 12 pages long. Then you go through an initial sort of hour to 90 minutes of uh, an interview. And then you have a, a follow-up of about four hours of going through pieces, at which point, you know, you get the report saying, yes, indeed, uh, you're on the autism spectrum. But high functioning, just to clarify that piece, uh, is that it, it's, that's not actually a scientific term. It's a term that the autism community has created because the spectrum is now so broad that it's trying to help people understand. Yeah. And so you can, you can be nonverbal aut autistic and you can be what would be called low functioning autistic, which means you're nonverbal and you have an IQ below 70. And so being high functioning just means, and it's still very, very broad, it just means that you are verbal and you have an IQ above 70. So it's still you know, fairly broad, but it just helps people navigate what does that mean. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's an area that then, you know, for, for, be, for me to explain to people what it means, if I explain it in the terms of banter, when I see people bantering back and forth, I see two people insulting each other and laughing in each other's faces. And it looks really rude to me. And so when I then try and do it, People look like I've, you know, just shot someone. They're like, what, what did you say? Why did you do that? So I, I tend to stick away from it uh, unless I'm super confident that I'm like, okay, I think I've heard someone say this before. This should be okay. I'll just put that in the conversation. Does that work? But generally, I, I tend to be very matter of fact in what I say, very genuine and just say things as, as I feel it and, and say it, you know, aim, aim to say it with warmth because I know that that's the, the side of communication that I, that I understand better. So it has been a process of learning things. But the overall value that I found that this brings to my clients is that they'll come to me saying, I want to have more gravitas. And, and I'm in a position where I, I had to build my communication skills up. Like I put, I put every brick together in building that house to get to the place where I go, okay, that's a house of communication. And when they say, well, I, you know, people say I'm lacking impact and gravitas. And I take a look at how they communicate. I go, okay, well, this brick over here, that's missing and this window over here and that door, that's what we need to put in place because I've had to do those pieces and I can go, let's do those things. And then it, it, it's amazing when I'm coaching people, to me, it's straightforward, but the, you'll see their colleagues, I'll coach the person for two minutes and their colleagues say that, 
how did you do that? That's like magic. What what are you doing there? And I just say that it's just these pieces that are mis- missing, and that they all get to put it into practice in their own ways. So so I I've always felt that I've always known I had a different sort of different perspective on things. But now that I understand what it is, uh, in my position, I feel like it's an advantage. It gives me a perspective that that can help people in other ways. Whereas you know I know other people with an autism diagnosis will will have many more challenges than I do. Yeah, well, it helps me make a lot more sense of your story because the <laughs> subtitle is you know, the science of communication when you, for your company yeah. body talk, and you've had to you've had to understand it, right? You've had to build up your understanding of those layers, yeah, uh, for your own needs, and now you're able to share those with others. Yeah, it makes, makes total yeah. sense. Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks. Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, it's it's been a fantastic communication with you. I've, I've, uh, <laughs> thank I've, you. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, so as we close out, yeah, how how if they if they really resonate with your message, they they've got a desire to to uh, improve their own communication skills or those of uh, within their company. Where should they go for more? Uh, well, the best place to find me is ukbodytalk.com, and there's a whole range of services uh, on the website. There's also loads of free resources on there. So there's there's uh, videos, uh, audio recordings, articles, loads of things. Uh, ukbodytalk.com. If people want to ask me a question personally, the best place to find me online is on LinkedIn. So you just look for Richard Newman Body Talk on LinkedIn. And I'm also on Instagram at Richard Newman Speaks. Newman Speaks. Okay. Well, thank you once again. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, yeah. And uh, I hope, Yeah, me too. Um, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, well, you could, you could continue... On this wonderful mission that you're on, just, you know, <laughs> to spread this uh, this science to the world. Yeah, it's uh, thank you. It's very inspiring to have uh, met you and had this conversation. Great. All right. Well, thanks once again, and uh, yeah, enjoy you enjoy your evening, Richard. Cheers. Thanks very much. Cheers. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human focused coaching and leadership programs head to firsthuman.com.